Good morning, everybody. As Jay said, my name is Stephen. I'm the downtown campus pastor. So it's a joy to be with you at COVID this morning. To those of you downtown, I miss you guys. And I'll be back next week. And uh, for those of you watching online, thank you so much for joining us. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 19. And in a moment, we'll start in verse 1. So last week, I had the opportunity to talk about forgiveness and what it means to forgive from the heart. And it's interesting because I've talked to some of you throughout this week and you're like, man, when you said commit to forgive, I was ready. Like I committed, I said I was going to forgive the person, but the week kind of got away from you or that became really scary or really weighty. I would just offer you this encouragement. If you desire to forgive someone or ask for forgiveness and it's from your heart, you're on that road to forgiveness. You're on the right road. Like you're on the road and God is with you because ultimately his heart is forgiveness, right? You think about Jesus going to the cross, dying for our sins, and in his dying breath, what does he say? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. On his worst day, he was still thinking of others. So we can be assured of this, that if our heart is to forgive, God is with us in that process. So if you committed to forgive someone last week, but you still haven't got there, make time this week to do so. You won't regret it. So let's read Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these things, he went away from Galilee, and he entered the region of Judea beyond Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. So we're told by Matthew that Jesus has, has finished his teachings. He's been teaching on the church and what it looks like to reconcile without, inside the church, and then he talks about forgiveness. And when he finishes those things, he leaves the area he's in and he starts to make his way somewhere else. And where Jesus is heading is where his life has always been heading. He's heading to the cross. He's heading to Jerusalem. He's heading to lay down his life on our behalf. And it's so encouraging to me here because Matthew tells us large crowds followed him. They have been amazed by the teaching of Christ and they could do nothing else but follow them. And we understand this too, that there were people who needed healing in those crowds. So as they follow Jesus, Jesus doesn't just say, hey, come along for the ride. No, he stops, he turns, and he heals. And he heals so many in the crowd. And it's in the midst of Jesus's healing ministry that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, come up to Jesus and they ask him a specific question. And we'll see that in verse 3. And Pharisees came up and they tested him by asking him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Instead of asking where the power came from, instead of asking how are you healing so many people, instead of asking can you teach us more on forgiveness, Jesus, or can you teach us more on what it means to forgive from the heart, instead of asking about Jesus' upcoming death and his resurrection, Instead of asking that great question, are you really the Messiah? Like, are you the person? Because they've heard him teach this whole time. Instead of asking those things, we realize they ask a different question. And friends, they do not come with much sincerity in their heart. Instead of shepherds coming to Jesus saying, there are people in our flock who are being plagued by divorce and we need your help, Jesus. We need your healing touch. No, they ask him a different question. Or instead of coming like a pastor who sat with people who've walked through the pain of divorce, they test him. 
And it's interesting because you've seen this word test in Matthew's gospel already. And the word test probably gives us something else. They don't really want to have an honest conversation with Jesus. They want to trap him. They want to destroy him. See, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, we're told this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That word tempted and the word test in Matthew 19 are the exact same word in the original language. In other words, the Pharisees, in asking their question, were acting more like Satan than religious leaders at all. They were acting like the devil. And, and I would just offer you this, that if your heart, when you ask somebody a question, is to trick them or trap them, your, your character is more like the devil's character there than it is actually like God's character in you. They're trying to get Jesus in the middle of a political debate. They're wondering if he's liberal, hey, that's okay, because we'll say he's a lawbreaker. But best case scenario, he's conservative, and he loses his life like John the Baptist did. That he loses everything, and we finally get rid of Jesus. We've trapped him. But Jesus doesn't fall for the trap. Jesus does exactly what he does in the wilderness temptation when he quotes scripture. It's interesting, because over and over, Satan would misquote scripture, and Jesus would say, you've got it wrong. And here, the Pharisees think they actually have an understanding, but Jesus is like, you've got it wrong, and I want you to hear his tender heart now. Verse 4, he answered them. And when he says this, man, just see it. Have you not read? Of course they had. Of course they had. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus is going back to the beginning. He's going back to first principles. He's going back to what life in Eden was like before the plague of sin entered the world. He's reminding them the teachings from the beginning. He says, in the beginning, God made one man and one woman, and he brought them together. And I want to I tell you, it's great news for us, because there's a lot of different opinions about what marriage is, who's, who's it for, how can you get married today? But like, it's great for us to know that marriage in its original intent was birthed out of the heart of God. When God officiated the first marriage, and he brought Eve to Adam, he made no, no allowance in Eden for that marriage to end. In fact, before sin entered the world, it was inconceivable. And you know, at most weddings today, we see some sort of picture of this, right? Like if you've been to a wedding recently, you've seen the celebration of two people leaving their, their childhood homes and coming together and in, in the front and center, and they celebrate this coming together at a wedding. I've had the extreme joy over 20 years of ministry of officiating so many weddings. And it's interesting because like I've watched people, when, especially when they get to the vows part, they promise to do the impossible, right? <laughs> like if you think about it, they, they say for in sickness and in health. And sometimes like I think the groom is like, yeah, if you have allergies, I'm all in, you know? <laughs> I'm not leaving. Or maybe even the cold, but the second you get the stomach blood bug, I'm just going. But in sickness and health, or, or more so, like they promise to do the impossible. Because really, what happens when cancer comes? What happens when the disease is long-term and the suffering is real? 
Like, that's what covenant is. That's what you're vowing to do. I read a book over fall break about the the crazy idea of marriage, and the author says in it, this is the surprise of marriage, that you promise the impossible, and then you have the audacity to attempt it. And when we're at weddings, people often illustrate this to becoming one, right? You've seen it, hopefully, if you've been to a wedding. Sometimes it's like what they call a unity rope, right? They take like two different ropes, sometimes three ropes, and they say a cord of of three strings is not easily broken. Sometimes they'll take a candle and they'll light the candle in the middle. Sometimes they'll take sand and it'll be from like two places that they love to vacation and they'll go together. I kid you not, one wedding I did, it was the most unique thing I've ever seen. They had what they called a unity tree, okay? And what they did is they took dirt from both their childhood homes, put it in like, I don't know what you call it, the base of the tree, right? And it was standing on stage the whole time I did the wedding. And then they took it on their honeymoon. I was like, wow. This is amazing. Like, I've never seen it. And, and I'll also let you into this insight. When you're officiating the wedding and you're the pastor, you pray they've practiced this. Because if they get up there and they can't tie the rope together, everyone's thinking the same thing. Like, this is not starting off well, right? You know, I think some of my own, own like, anxiety about it comes from my experience 20 years ago. Um, I got married 20 years ago in this upcoming May and so excited about that and so grateful for Elizabeth. But I remember, like, I, I didn't know what was happening. You know, she's like, we're getting married at a church and we're gonna do this unity moment. So the unity moment is the candles, right? Like you take the candles, your, my parents walk down the aisle, they lit one candle, her parents walked down the aisle, lit the other candle. And then there's a moment in the service where all of a sudden, like we take the candles, we put them together, two becoming one, we turn around, we blow out the candles. Easy peasy, right? Like it's gonna go well. Sure enough, I'm on stage and we're walking down the stairs and there's this Josh Groban song behind me in Italian, okay? And I'm, <laughs> I'm nervous as anything. I'm glad I haven't passed out by this point. And as I'm walking down the stage, Elizabeth whispers me, do you remember what to do? And I had no idea. <laughs> but with all the confidence in the world, I said, absolutely. We get there, she gets her candle, she goes in, I get my candle, I go out and I blow out the candle like a birthday cake. <laughs> And, and, and like, she goes, Stephen, and the place erupted in laughter. And I tell you that because I really do think there's this moment that we realize that Jesus is pointing back to something and most weddings are pointing back to the same thing. It's how it was from the beginning. God started marriage and says a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife or hold fast to his wife. It's this picture of covenant. Tim Keller, in writing on marriage, when he thinks about covenant, wrote this. In a wedding, you are not so much declaring your present love, though, of course, that's the reason for it. In a wedding, you're promising future love. You're not just saying, I feel tender towards you now. In a wedding, in a covenant, you're saying nothing about your feelings in the present. In a covenant, you're saying, I promise to be tender to you, to be affectionate, to be faithful, to be serving from now, regardless of your condition or regardless of mine. That's what covenant is. And you guys know this because like in the garden, Adam and Eve walked in this perfect relationship with God. So this idea of oneness is a a covenant with each other, but a covenant with God too, right? And the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask, ask him about divorce. And Jesus looks back at them and he says, you're asking the wrong question. 
Like there's, there's a deeper thing going on in people's hearts and in people's lives. There's a, a greater work that I want to do. God made Eve, why? Because he saw it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. And Adam says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, breaks out into poetry when he sees her. He doesn't just look at Eve and say, I love you. No, he says, I am you. I mean, that's how connected they are. There's something a lot deeper about this idea of oneness in the Bible. Because when you're in this kind of relationship, you're opened all the way, you're exposed, you're loved and supposed to be delighted in. God's at the center of your marriage. And that is scary. And it can be really difficult to commit yourself to someone like that and hope to love you and rejoice you and accept you. That is really hard work, friends. My friend Jeff Toomer told me once, and this is a great idea, find somebody who's been married 30, 40 years, someone you really admire. It doesn't even have to be that long. Just find somebody who you say, their marriage looks good, it looks strong, it looks healthy. I want to model my life after them. Take them to coffee, take them to lunch, and ask them how. Like, how did you get here? They're not going to say, you know, we just kind of worked it out. Like, we just woke up and just looked at each other and said, I guess we're married. No. They will say the grace of God. It's the grace of God. It's his mercy new every morning. And they'll say it was really hard work. They'll tell you that. To be one flesh is hard work. Where you open yourself over, over and over, showing Jesus, just how important he is in your marriage. And you know, in the garden, God doesn't put a parent and a child, right? He doesn't look at Adam and say, it's not good for you to be alone. Here's your child. In the garden, God doesn't just put a bunch of guys together so they can go hunt and kill things, okay? No, in the garden, God makes a woman. And you know this about marriage if you're married or you've been married. Marriage really has the potential to set the course for your life. If your marriage is weak, it doesn't matter how strong the rest of your life is. It doesn't matter if you're advancing in your career, if your kids are doing well, if, you, if your social media status is where you want it. Like, none of that matters if your marriage is weak. But if your marriage is strong, the world around you can fall apart and you can move in strength because you are operating within this covenant relationship with your spouse and with God. In Jesus' day and in our day, some people teach this. Hey, marriage is about staying happy. Marriage is about getting your way. Marriage is about raising a family or having a companion or having a best friend. And while all those things are good, the Bible holds up something more beautiful. Because if that's all that marriage is, then it's easy to dissolve it. Because the day you don't feel happy, the day you don't feel like you love that person, the day you're not attracted to that person any longer, the day your kids kind of shipwreck your marriage, you feel like they do. Let me say this, kids don't do that, but you feel like, you feel like they're out of control and you don't know what to do, like you will dissolve it easily. But if your marriage will go back to these first principles, these first ideas, there's real hope for your marriage. See, the Bible says marriage is more about God than we realize. Because ultimately what marriage does is it displays God's relationship with the church. See, the apostle Paul later would pick up on what Moses says in Genesis, and then what Jesus says in Matthew, in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, and that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body, because he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then here it is, right? We saw this in Matthew. Here's the quotation again. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast. That's the idea of covenant to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects the husband. Paul's, Paul's pushing in. Paul's helping the church at Ephesus and helping us realize what marriage is really supposed to display. In a marriage relationship, we're told that it's supposed to display, that the husband and wife displays Christ's relationship with the church. A husband is supposed to love his wife as Jesus loved the church. Now, let me pause and back up there in case you miss what that means. How did Jesus love the church? He served the church. He died for the church. He gave his life for the church. And as a husband, I'm supposed to love my wife like that, like a sacrificial love. A love that's not selfish, a love that's not self-centered, but a love that gives myself to her. And, and this is a good word for us husbands in the room or those who hope to be husbands one day, that we should love our spouse with such a great love that all it does is stirs her affections for Jesus. Like it woos her and wins her. And she thinks, if a human can love me this much, how much more does God love me? I mean, that's the picture. And husbands, if you are not loving your wives that way, like you probably know and she probably knows it, today would be a good day to ask for God's help and to tell her you're sorry. And to commit with the power of God in your one, oneness, right, to help you in that. As a husband loves his wife that way, the wife, the wife follows him and believes in his leadership. She comes under it. What a joy that is. And for some reason, by the time you get to Jesus' day, the Pharisees have missed this joy completely. I mean, Jesus just points them back to first principles and they are not satisfied with his answer. So they dig deeper. Look at verse seven. So they're trying to trap him more. Then they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife, but from the beginning, it was not so. Please Every person catch these words. They say it's a command, right? Jesus said it was an allowance. But Jesus wants to encourage all of us, whether we are married or we've experienced the pain of divorce, this isn't how it was supposed to be. If you've experienced the pain of divorce in your life, like you, you agree with those words. Like you know that's true. And then Jesus says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. 
See, they think they've got him. They think they've tricked him finally. They say, well, why did, why did Moses command this, Jesus? Come on, man. Like, we've read that, but have, don't you know what Moses did? And Jesus looks them square in the eyes, and he says, it's because your hearts are hard. They want to know if they can leave their wife if she doesn't cook the way that they like. And Jesus says, you are missing it. And just the fact that they are asking this question after Jesus points them back to Eden shows just how far gone they are. Every marriage in the world happens because of God and before God. And, and every divorce tears it apart. And they come to Jesus and they're asking this question. Hey, we want to know, when can we tear? When can we separate? And it's almost like Jesus is looking back at them and saying, hey, why are there no tears in your eyes over this? Why aren't you broken for people who are going through this? Why aren't you trying to empathize and care about these people? We've been learning about the kingdom of God all through Matthew, and we see how do you receive the kingdom of God with soft hearts, humble status, and empty hands. Friends, when it comes to this situation, our hearts have to be soft. When God loves to unite, we see humans love to pull apart. The Pharisees approach in this passage by almost like doing the hypothetical, imaginary person. That is cruel. Jesus' response is tender. Jesus knows the immense pain divorce can have. It's like marriage is this gluing of together of two people. And if you've ever sat with someone who's gone through divorce, or if you've been on that side, they often describe it as this, that it was a tearing apart of the very fabric of who I was. Hmm. The price is high. And the Pharisees look at data. Jesus looks at people. The Pharisees have hard and fast rules. Jesus sees a world in pain. And friends, this is good news that he sees it because it's why he came. Like Jesus came to deal with that. And there is no situation. There's no marriage in this room or, or, or a person who's experienced the pain of divorce in this room that the cross cannot cover. See, Jesus came to deal with our pain, our brokenness, and our guilt. And he also came to reconcile us to God, to restore that oneness that was found in Eden, to give us our union with God back. And I know this. I know in this room and downtown that probably there's not a single person who, whose life hasn't been impacted by the pain of divorce. And if you've been touched by the devastation of divorce, you don't need anyone to tell you this wasn't the way it was supposed to be, right? What you need is you need Jesus to do a new work in your heart. And if it was because of your sin and you've never repented of that, don't hold off. Like ask God for forgiveness. He surely will do it. He has never turned away somebody who comes to him for forgiveness. If you're a child of divorce, a friend of somebody who's been divorced, if you have a family member who's walking through a divorce, no, it's not the way God intended it to be, but God's gentleness and God's kindness can bring healing to your heart. Open your life afresh and anew to God's movement in your life. And friends, I, I want you to know, like, and I say this with sincerity, like, I know this pain. Like, divorce is on every side of my family tree. If you go to, like, Ancestry.com and you just look at my family tree, you're just going to see divorce. And as a child, it left me questioning was I not worth it? Did no one love me? Why did it happen? 
And can I tell you that, like, no matter where you are in this storm of divorce, it does not define you like Christ does. Like Christ covers even that. I'm learning to say what Joseph said, what was meant for evil, God intended it for good, or what Paul said in Romans 8, 28, that we know this, that all things work for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And I wanna say this too. If somebody left you or left somebody that you love, if they abandoned you, if they failed to keep their marriage covenant, if they, they gave up on their vows, if they tore apart what God put together, I know for some the pain is still there. And you may wonder sometimes, like, why was I not worth it? Why didn't they see my value and my heart hurts for you? And I just want to say, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. It's not the way God wanted it. If someone's sin brought an end to something you'd never imagined, I'm sorry. No one stands on their wedding day and thinks about a unity candle or a knot or a tree, right, and says, hey, I hope this ends in divorce. No one does it. But the reality is it happens. That's why Jesus said what he said in Matthew. He said, friends, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. But if you've experienced this pain, Jesus doesn't actually move away from you. He doesn't shame you. He doesn't condemn you. No, he moves towards you and says, I'm trying to restore what, was, what, was, what it was like in Eden. And let me tell you what this passage really highlights. Like, if you think this passage is just about marriage, you'll miss it. If you think this passage is about divorce and who can get divorced and why divorce happens, you'll miss it. If you think it's about singleness, you'll miss it. No, here's what the passage is highlighting, and it's why Jesus goes all the way back to Eden. It's highlighting that God wants to be one with us. Like, think about that for a moment, that God wants to be one with us. Like, what does that say about him? That we have a God who longs to be in relationship with us, and he would do anything to get us back, even if it meant losing his very life. Like, what does that teach us about the character and the nature of God? And the other question is this, what does it say about our worth, our value, how much he prizes us? The Bible says in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his love for us in this way, that while we were still sinners, so while we were at our worst, Christ died for us. And if you are in Christ, of course he loves you. No matter what's happened, we are loved. And even when the loss of human love happens and we experience the pain and the brokenness of this, God can put us back together. He truly can make beauty from ashes. And I pray you can be open-hearted to that today. I pray that you allow Jesus to do that work in your life. And maybe you've been divorced or somebody in your family has been divorced and you've been covering it and you feel a lot of shame and guilt, and condemnation. And what happens a lot of times is we do exactly what Adam and Eve do when we feel that. We make fig leaves. When you think about fig leaves, they made a covering in the garden when sin happened. Those fig leaves were gonna shrivel up and go away, right? They're a horrible covering. 
They are horrible. In fact, in the garden, God provides a better covering. But you push forward to the New Testament. You push forward to the end of Matthew. You push forward to the cross. And what you learn is that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. How can Paul say that in Romans 8.1? Only because Jesus' blood still is the better covering. It covers everything in our life. It covers every pain, every moment of brokenness, every sin committed against us and every sin we've committed. If we will go to Jesus with that, like the cross will cover it. Some of us need to look to Jesus, the altar and perfecter of our faith, for who the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising his shame. So Jesus can have joy in the cross. And when we look at the cross, no matter what we're walking through in our own lives, man, we can have joy and we can say what was meant for evil is used for good by God. He longs to make you one with himself today. He lived to identify with us. Jesus knows what it feels like to be betrayed. He knows what it feels like to be lied to. He knows what it feels like to have someone break their commitment to you on his worst day. All those things happen, and he still did his best work. And wherever you are in this situation right now, wherever you find yourself in life today, when it comes to marriage, divorce, and singleness, know if you are in one of your worst seasons, God can do his best work in you. We need tender hearts. His stripes still bring healing. His grace has not failed. You know what James says in James chapter four? That God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. And then right before that, he says, and there's more grace. Like you can't exhaust it. He truly is the living water. Come to him and never thirst again. He's acquainted with our grief and our suffering. And for some of you, man, that grace, that mercy is what sustains your marriage so far. Keep leaning into that. Some of you, think about what the Lord's done today and then you see how this passage ends. His disciples actually come to him and they ask him a question. They're not trying to trick him. They're really sincere. Look at it. Matthew 9, 10. The disciples said, if this is a case of a man with a wife, it's a fair question, is it better not to marry? Right? They're like, if this is it, this sounds too hard. This sounds too difficult, Jesus. Is it just better not to marry? But he said to them, not everyone can receive the same, but those to whom it's given. For there are eunuchs who have been from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Let the one who's able to receive it, receive it. Here's what Jesus is saying when they ask him this question. They say, hey, if you're going to get married, don't enter it lightly. Like it matters. Don't enter it lightly. If you get divorced, don't end the marriage lightly. He says, if you're single, though, your life also matters. He says, use your singleness for the kingdom of God. Like, do that. And if you're able to receive that gift, receive it. Maybe you're in this room and you say, hey, I feel called to singleness. Like, that's a gift from the Lord. Don't walk in shame because of that. Don't think because you're not like everyone else that you sit around or hang out with that's wrong. No, God says, leverage your life for the kingdom. It's actually why Paul would say later in 1 Corinthians, those, the time is short, those of you who are married, live as if you were not because all of our lives are postured for the kingdom. And maybe you're just single for the season right now. I mean, maybe you're obsessed. You're like, I gotta find my spouse or 
I've got to find that person. I've got to start a family. Like, Lord, when is, when is it going to happen? And you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're praying and you're praying and you're praying and you're longing for something to change. And what I would just offer you is this. Maybe, maybe the hope is to seek first the kingdom of God. And maybe it's just a season. Maybe you will be married one day. But as you're single, leverage your life for the gospel and the kingdom. Let Jesus' words instruct you and your obedience will bless people. So the band's gonna come and as they come, I'll just kind of ask this question. If your marriage is in a tough spot in this room today, today would be a good day to grab your spouse's hand and to think back to your wedding vows and to say, I do again. If it's in a great spot, also a good time to do that, okay? A really good time. If you've experienced the pain of divorce, open your hands to the Lord. Open your hands to him and your heart to him and see what he might do in you. And maybe ask the question, what does it say about God who wants to be one with us? And what does it say about my life? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. And I thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray for those spouses whose marriage is in a tough spot today. They know it, you know it, maybe nobody else knows it. I pray that oneness that you have with them would stay strong. I pray if they need help, they reach out for help. That they would know it's hard. And then when God's put together, man tears apart. And they wouldn't end something easily. I pray for those who have a loved one who's walked through this pain. God, that you would comfort them right now. And, know that, and they would know that you are good and you work all things for good for the purpose, for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. I pray for the parent in this room who's experienced the pain of divorce and they're worried about their kids, that they could just offer their kids to you again. And tell God you're better with them. Lord, I pray that we would look to the cross and realize how valuable we are to you. God, we praise you today. We praise you. You paid our debt and the cross covers even this. Thank you that you want to be one with us. Thank you that you want to restore us. Lord, for the person who doesn't know you in this room, that they would trust in you today. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.